putting religion on the stand. And our consciences determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. What's in our mind, what controls us, what leads us, it determines our religious, what, what we really think about religion, whether those realities are even biblically true or not. And so things, things that we once felt guilty about, we no longer feel guilty about once we discover more of who we are in Christ. That's the journey. But now there's things that we do feel guilty about, but that we didn't once feel guilty about. What's up with that? That's called religion. Now, the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of righteousness, and the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And so anytime there's guilt involved, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. He came to bring conviction and lead us back to Him and remind us of who He says we are, okay? So guilt is often involved with religion. And we all in in Western culture have been shaped, have been fine-tuned somewhat by some version, and I'm telling you lightly, version of Christianity. The, the, the type that Jesus of the Jesus movement and a type of temple model have been blended in in this thing that we actually call faith, but it's really a lot of religion. So we feel the way we do towards God and towards others based on the way we have been taught. Whoever controls your conscience actually controls your behavior. Because what has shaped you now controls you, and what shaped you is based on what has been taught to you. And now you are the byproduct of what has been taught to you. But you're not over, and neither am I. So we're putting religion under the lens of microscope. We're going to touch on multiple beliefs but we're putting religion under the microscope. And this all came about with the temple model, and the temple model has been here since the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the, the first Jewish, uh, Jewish ultra-religious church. And so the temple model, it's also in the mud hut regions, it's the Buddhists, it's the Islam, it's religion is religion all around the world that involves several things, four things, in fact. It involves sacred places, it involves sacred texts, whether it's a hieroglyphic or it's actually text or it's some kind of drawing on the side of a cave somewhere or it's some, some thing that has been worshipped. And somewhere, some people group have found something and they have called this a mediator between them and God and then some sacred man, it's always a sacred man that's involved in this, has dictated what that scripture text, that symbol, that image what it truly means so that they would have sincere followers or superstitious followers or scared followers. And this is why many, many of you even, have abandoned anything that looks like Jesus or a version of religion altogether. It's these things. It's this temple model that has been played out and lived out and has gone on for generations. Now, don't get offended just yet. I'm not talking about the little church that you grew up in, except for I am. But Jesus came to bring something brand new. Jesus had a brand new intention and a brand new model. He had a brand new... 
a brand new everything because it started with a brand new covenant. When Jesus came and he, became, he shed his blood on the cross, there must be bloodshed for the sake of a covenant. In that moment, there was an agreement between, to restore the relationship between God and man. And that meant the old covenant is now gone and behold, the new covenant is now arrived. So Jesus came to bring a new covenant, hallelujah, and he also came to bring out a new command. Now, this one new two-part command, one command, if it were lived out correctly, if it were lived out humbly, would completely delete the need to even focus on any of the other commands. Because if you just lived this one command out, you would, by product, live out all of the other commands. And this command was to love God and let that be shown by your love for one another. So this new command. And this new command would drive home this new ethic. And this new ethic would trickle into every one of your life choices, your decisions, every one of your relationships, and every one of your situations. And this new ethic, if lived out according to the new command, which is based on the new covenant, if this were lived out through you into the lives of others, the kingdom of God would advance and it would be groundbreaking because the Holy Spirit would be able to do the work himself just because you're implying and living out this new ethic based on this new command and he would join with you and do the rest of the work. That would create the new movement. And it's this new movement where Jesus says, I'm going to build my assembly. He tells this to Peter. I'm going to build my gathering. I'm going to build my congregation. The word we use is ecclesia, and we have it as uh, one thing. William Tinsdale actually tra translated it when, in the 1500s when he translated the first Bible he translated this word just as the context of Jesus implied, gathering, assembly, congregation. But after doing so, after he, after he translated this way, the religious sect said, wait a minute, that doesn't articulate what we want this to say. And so they took a German word, the meaning, meaning house of the Lord. They put that meaning on ecclesia. And now when you think about church, you think about building. You think about that thing that we're building behind Whataburger that the church actually goes into to meet. What Jesus meant is I'm creating a movement, an assembly, a congregation of people. I'm not creating a building, but my people will come in and worship and they will go out and be a movement in all the earth. That is what Jesus meant in this new movement. It was no longer a place, but a movement. There would no longer be animal sacrifice, but there would be self-sacrifice. People would then give up their lives for his life so that now they could truly have life. No animal could actually re re restore the relationship between God and man because Jesus had already done it as himself, as the new covenant, as the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, there would, the integrity of the vertical would be determined by the condition of the horizontal. The proof that you love God would be based on how you love this person and this person and this person and this person. And if it wasn't evidenced all around here, I'm not so sure and Jesus was not so sure that it was really up there. 
And so Jesus said things like in Matthew 5, oh, when you bring in your offering, never did he say not to bring in your offering. By the way, it's the first of the month. Uh, bring in your offering and you bring it to the altar and you remember, oh, I've got my brother or sister has something against me. Not even that you have something against them, but they have something against you. You leave that offering. You go make things right with your brother and sister. Jesus says, God can wait. But what he's really implying is, you better keep things right between your brothers and sisters because you got to do both of these things. So we keep things right between God and man by proving, we prove that, by how we are restored in our relationships with man. This was Jesus' intention. Then comes, then comes Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was raised by Gamaliel. He was ultra-religious. He was Old Testament to the core. He was going to live it out and make sure it was lived out. He was, in his mind, called to be the, the restorer of the Torah in his generation. He was the, the ultra-religious. He was killing Christians. He was in his heart, saying, I've got this, I'm going to take care of this Christian Jesus movement, and he would have done so if on his way, Jesus didn't show up himself and say, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you killing me? In that moment, it created a revelation, eye-opening moment that took several years, people, you may not know this, but for several years, Jesus set aside Paul and spoke to him on a mountain, showing him all the things in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets that he had learned were all just shadow types, shadow types and shadows pointing to Jesus to come. And so in that, Paul, Saul, turned to Paul's life was changed. His understanding was renewed. And he came out of there on fire saying, wait a minute, I was wrong. I've been killing my people, the Christians. And so he sets out and he goes on missionary journeys and he's, he's beginning to set up and establish these little Jesus gatherings, these little Jesus assemblies everywhere the Holy Spirit would allow. And so he gets to this place called Galatia and he set up this, this Jesus gathering, these, these people that were pure hearted, pure faith, and it was all about Jesus. And he goes away. I think they're good, he says. He goes away and he gets word that some Judaizers, I explained this two weeks ago, these Judaizers, which are former Jews, now they're Christians, they're, they're, they're Judaizers, they're Christ, Messianic Jews, they come and they say, hey, wait a minute, you're not doing this right. Paul didn't give you all of the information. If you're really going to become a Jesus follower, first you have to become a Jew, and that means you've got to be circumcised so that you can be like a Jew. Then once you're like a Jew, you can be, you're a Jew, you can become like Jesus. Aren't you glad in our equip track we don't make you get make you get circumcised to join the church? Hallelujah! Somebody, somebody, work with me here. And so, and so he wrote, writes to them, and there's a lot of humor in the Bible. You should read it. There's a lot of he says he says who cut in on you? Pun intended. Who cut in on you? He says if you do this thing and you go ahead and do the circumcision. No longer will there be any grace for you. He's saying you can't get to heaven by works. It is by grace that you get to heaven, but it is by grace that you are saved unto works. 
You can't earn your way into heaven. And so in that, in Galatians 5, 6, he says the only thing that counts, folks, is faith expressing itself through love. It's, it's expressing means working itself out. Oh, I don't like this person, but Jesus said this. And so it's faith. My faith in Jesus is being worked out in how I express my love. I express my faith through love to the people I can't stand the most. Somebody Amen. Highly thank you, Jesus, for working that faith out in my heart every day I go to work. <laughs> you know who I'm talking to. But he did something. Paul said, no, this thing that Jesus did is not like that. It's completely brand new. It's a brand new movement. And he continues on and he goes to a place called Corinth. It's a port place, very wealthy of its time because of import, exports. And so in Corinth, they were having some struggles, having, having some issues, trying to figure out how do you do this church thing? How do you, how do, you do this Jesus movement church thing? And so the Messianic Jews, the, the former Jews that are now Messianic, they would go on occasion, they would pilgrim, uh, do a pilgrimage back to the Holy Land so that they could worship Jesus now on the, on the, on the Holy Mountain. And the pagan Greek, uh, now Christians, would go to their pagan temples and they would say, how do we work out? this thing because their consciences are still based in what they do and their behaviors are still based on what they were told, right? They're still pagan in their hearts and in their minds and they're figuring out how to work this Jesus thing into all of that. And so they're worshiping Jesus in their temples and, and Paul hears about this and he says, wait a minute. In 1 Corinthians 6.19 he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples? Yes, you the people around you are more sacred and more holy than any piece of dirt that you think you're going in to worship him in. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And that means that Christian that you can't stand also is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And the church movement exploded. So the Christians would take in kids off the streets, most oftentimes pagan kids who were rejected, who were, who were removed from their own home. Maybe the pagans couldn't take care of them. They would, the Christians would take them and bring them in and love them as their own. And so the Greek pagan thinking could not grasp this, that Christians would actually love one another. That Christians would actually forgive one another. They would honor one another. And what really got these Greek pagans was that these Christians were not afraid to die for their faith because they worshipped and lived for a resurrected Savior. These Christians. These, these pagan Gentiles, these, these beginning Christians had no Bible. They couldn't pull out you version on their phone and, and read it and get it into their souls and get it into them. They had, they had no Old Testament, no Torah. It wasn't their culture. All they were armed with was stories about what Jesus had done. Until 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul comes on the scene and his letters start to circulate throughout these pagan Gentile communities. And they only had copies of these 
and an extraordinary faith fueled by love for one another. And they believed you are a portable temple surrounded by other portable temples. And they lived this thing out and they actually put others before themselves. These Jesus movement Christians. And then in AD 70, what was prophesied decades before, it was as if God said, listen, you're not getting what I have done. You missed it. He put a stamp on this Jesus movement and the Jewish temple was destroyed. The place where they would try to go get reconciled by God, uh, back to God by, human, I mean, by animal, sacri- animal sacrifice, he said, that is not where I am anymore. The, the, the veil has been torn. I am residing in you. And everything began to change. And God and Jesus didn't come to abolish the prophets, but to fulfill them. And this is exactly what Jesus was trying to articulate. And it all came by one command. Love God and demonstrate that love towards God by loving one another. One stamp. Then people with nothing in common all of a sudden had everything in common through Christ. Hallelujah to that. These people with different race of different races, cultures, belief, ethnicities, religious upbringing, all of a sudden they had they were complete division. All of a sudden there was unity based on this one command that Jesus gave us all. United. In October 38, I mean 28 and 312, Constantine en route to battle against Maxentius. Uh, there, there was a battle between two sharing Roman emperors. And so some of Constantine's men chased some villains, some criminals across a bridge into Maxentius' territory. And because they were so territory, territorial, this battle arose between the two of them, the two emperors of the day. And they said, well, we're going to figure out who's going to be the one Roman emperor uh, once and for all. And so Constantine set up and Maxentius set up and they were about to go to war. And in in an instant, Constantine saw in the sky a cross. And we don't know if he heard or he saw these words in this sign conquer. So he gets up and and on his, his warriors, his soldiers... He writes, they ha- he has them write on their shield the cross, a cross signifying Jesus, and they go to war with Maxentius and they're victorious. Well, in that time, the Christians praised him, Christ- the, the Constantine's faith rose, and the Christians, the Christians' one true God was now being embraced by others because Constantine saw this cross in the sky heard or saw these words, put a cross on their shield and went to war and were victorious. And it was hailed that God won the victory for Constantine being the Roman emperor once and for all. So all of a sudden, God was embraced, Jesus was embraced, and everything began to, to, to get, begin to shift. The Christians gained popularity, they gained status, and this birthed the Holy Roman Empire. 
Unfortunately, it was more Roman and more empire than it was holy. The church was no longer taxed, so wealthy, wealthy people began dedicating their property to God. And so, so rich people actually became, became Christians because it was actually more beneficial to be a Christian than it was about their relationship and their life change to be a Christian. Now they were doing it simply for the benefits of. And, and he also, Constantine also, banned crucifixion. He donated money to families who would take in little children. And Constantine took every significant landmark and he built a temple on top of it. If you travel throughout Israel and the surrounding parts, you will see every place that they think something happened, there will be a temple a shrine on top of that landmark. I stood in the place, the dungeon that they held Jesus supposedly before the night of the crucifixion, and on top of it is a temple. So overnight, the Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. Can you imagine that? Overnight, they were persecuted. Every turn, every, every turn of the corner, and then all of a sudden, now they have power. Can you imagine what that might do to a person? And accidentally, as a result, Christianity became inseparable from empire. And the church leaders created their own version of the temple with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. Now, now there were sacred places with new sacred men now articulating the sacred text in a new way, and they would take the, all the Christian writings, they would bind them together, and then they would chain them to the altar, and they would say, we will now tell you how you should live and what you should believe. Now they would determine what was taught and what was lived out. And then the Arian controversy arose. Arius was a, 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 a supposed to be a theologian of the time, but there was also Athanasius, a, a theologian of the time. Arius had this belief, and he was teaching people that he believes the Bible says it was over this one word, begotten, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Arius would say, no, Jesus was born fully man, and because of his faithfulness towards God, God blessed him with divinity. And Athanasius said, wait a minute, that's not the truth. Here's what Scripture really says. Jesus was completely divine since birth. That was where his divinity started. So Constantine, new in his faith, came and he said, I would like Arius and Athanasius to come together. I would like to hear this debate. I want to judge on this conversation, and I will decide how we, were going to, we are going to believe from this day forward. So he heard the debate, he let them rattle back and forth, and at the end of this, we have this edict written in history, and it says this by Emperor Constantine, and I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed by fire, his penalty shall be death. And it wasn't, 
that they would go away loving and accepting one another's differences in Christ. It was from this point on, now theological division was punishable by death. If you don't believe what I believe, there's something wrong with you. In fact, even worse, if you don't believe what I believe, you're going to die. And suddenly, believing the wrong thing was a crime. And suddenly, Christians are now arresting Christians. And what you believed trumped how you behave. No, this wasn't last year. What you believe now trumped how you behave. And Christianity became more creedal than relational. You've heard of the Apostles' Creed. Very theological in its text. However, it leaves anything with behavior or love completely out. And so these priests, these sacred men of the day, would now write these creeds because generally the creeds must be, in order to be lived out by the people, must be approved by the emperor. And so the priests, not wanting to offend the emperor, who have very carnal and bad behavior, would never write anything in the creed that would address behavior or love because they knew the emperor wouldn't do it anyway, but they just wanted them to, uh, to receive the Christian belief. So these creeds would, is what would be declared and lived out, and it had nothing to do with what Jesus intended for love. It was law brought back under the Scriptures. It was all principle and no relationship. And this is what was mandatory for culture to be lived out from there. And creeds, creeds began to rule, not the Scriptures. Consequently, no one was ever persecuted or crucified because they loved one another too much. Now you had Christians arresting Christians for wrong things, and suddenly there was a Christian version of the temple model. And sacred men became the gatekeepers of heaven and hell. The bishops, the archbishops, the priests, the pope... Now, all of a sudden, they would withhold communion and baptism according to how they interpreted the Scriptures. Even Constantine, being more emperor than holy, waited until he was on his deathbed to be baptized because he thought, he believed, that once you get baptized, all of your sins are now forgiven. Let me, let, let me plug this in. You don't have to wait until your, your deathbed to get baptized and your baptism do not prove the, the, the forgiveness of your sins. It's your belief in Jesus and living out what Jesus says. It's receiving him as Lord and Savior is what brings the remission of your sins. So we are having a baptism on March 29th. And if you've never been baptized, hey, register, get signed up. Fill out one of these response cards and say, hey, I'm ready to get baptized. Come on. It's time. We believe in it, for sure. Now, November 27th, 1095. I'm covering hundreds of years. November 27th, 1095, Pope Urban II, create, he, he declares this statement, and it began to change further Christianity as we know it. It would become, he, he, would, he would declare to the knights, to the farmers, to everyone on the street that he could possibly round up, and what we know as the crusaders, he would say this, now it's time for us to go back to the Holy Land and take it back from the Muslims. 
And he would say, if you go to war as a crusader, God will forgive your sins. Whew. With this in mind, they went through all of Europe raping, stealing, and pilfering every house they could possibly get, get through on their way to the Holy Land so they could fight the Muslims and try to take it back. Now, yes, they were victorious, but they didn't stop there. They thought, well, if my sins are going to be forgiven and I can do all these things anyway because I'm a crusader, why don't we go ahead and kill the people who are responsible for the, the, killing the Messiah themselves? And so anti-Semitism arose throughout Europe, and all throughout Europe, the crusaders killed every Jewish man and woman they could because they held them responsible for murdering Jesus Christ. And it was all... All this anti-Semitism arose after the Pope said, which means God wills it. He screamed, God wills it. God wills it. And he must have because they won. They were victorious. They took, they took the Holy Land from the Muslims. But I guess a hundred years later, God no, no longer willed it. Because a man, a Muslim leader named Saladin, took it back from the Crusaders, and the Crusaders have never controlled the Holy Land like they did before. In fact, you go there right now, you go to the Holy Mountain, it is, you'll be lucky, blessed to even get in there. I was there three years ago, and they ran us off because we were talking about Jesus at the gate called Beautiful. We are standing over the holiest of holies, where it's believed that the holiest of holies once were. We are standing on the top of what they call the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock. And some Muslim man walks up and says, quit telling your stories here. It's time for you to get out of here. Don't spread your lies around this place. It's real in 2015. It's real in 2020. It's real. So suddenly, there's this temple model. Suddenly, there's this temple model with a Christian version that emerged out of all of this crusading, out of all of this transition of the text, out of all of this recycling. And suddenly, this, the movement that was fueled by love for one another, for, for, by forgiving one another, by honoring one another, suddenly, this movement almost came to a halt if it wasn't for the monastic movement. And this small group of people embraced what Jesus really meant when he, when he talked about loving one another and loving your God. And they embraced this. They lived it out. And it would have been gone if it hadn't been for this small group of people. And in 1517, we know it as the time of the Reformation, it, didn't, it wasn't intentionally that there would be a Protestant movement come out of this, but there was a protest by Martin Luther that said, wait a minute, y'all have been reading us these scriptures and interpreting these scriptures and telling us it's by works and by doing these things and these way, this is the way we're going to get to heaven, but the scriptures say something else. So he wrote such things that said, solo fide, by faith alone. Not by works. By faith alone shall we make it to heaven. Yes, it's by faith that we are saved unto works, but it's not by works that we get to heaven. 
Now, he was excommunicated, but he didn't care because he didn't think the Pope had the power to excommunicate anybody anyway. I'm going to give you a, a little plug right here. A pastor, a pastor that I, in November, he was telling us the story of when he first started pastoring and speaking and from the platform, and he had this powerful message, and he was just on fire, and he was just delivering it with, with a lot of passion, and he was talking about these stories of Martin Luther and Martin Luther King, and he didn't realize they were two different people. <laughs> <laughs> and they lived 400 years apart. And so he's telling this passionate message, and he's just bringing it home, and he, he ends it, and, and people are actually in, in, in tears, and they're coming for, for, for prayer, and, and he gets down, he's thinking, I did it, like I've arrived. And an old gentleman steps up, and, and he pats him on the back. He says, son, that was, that was a really good message, but you do know that Martin Luther and Martin Luther King are two different people. <laughs> He just hung his head and like, oh no, what have I done? What have I done to these people? And so anyway, that was for nothing. Uh, solo, and then Martin Luther writes, solo, solo scriptura, which means only scripture. Only scripture can interpret scripture. Only scripture, not the church. He says the church can no longer, should not interpret the scriptures. The scriptures interpret themselves. And so he created, unknowingly, this thing we called a Protestant movement, and that is what you and I are all known as, as Protestants. But it wasn't as good as it sounds. And that's when William Tyndale, that, that same season, that's when he had translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the first English translation and was killed for it. And Martin Luther said, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Without knowing where this may go, suddenly in the hands of Protestant reform leaders, the scriptures became the very same thing they were under papal authority, and that is they became a weapon. Because after all, now these Protestant leaders were armed with Scripture. These reformers were armed with Scripture. And suddenly this reform turned into, it splintered into three, six, a dozen, dozens of dozens, and now over a thousand different denominations around the world. And did you know what divided them? Was it... Was it because they loved better than one another? Was it because they loved differently than one another? No. What has divided the Protestant, the, the Jesus movement, is because how they've interpreted the Scriptures different from one another. And so it's recycled. Again, if you don't believe the way I believe, there's something wrong with you, and we will be divided. And now Christians are arresting Christians, and Christians are shaming Christians, and Christians are accusing Christians, and Christians are no longer Christians, uh, 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 loving Christians, and Christians are all about what you believe rather than what you, or how you behave and how you love. And Jesus, Jesus came to bring one command that would change a complete different ethic, bring a different ethic, which would engage a completely different movement. Because now other sacred men in tape interpreted 
these sacred texts. And more importantly, they were deciding on what kept people in or out of hell. Now it was men who were deciding if you were going to go to hell. Do you know who decides you're gonna, if you're going to go to hell or not? Not even God. You. You get to decide if you're going to receive the gift of eternal life. You get to decide if you're going to reject the gift of eternal life. God doesn't send anybody to hell. He desires that all be saved. It's in his word. He's, pre, he's predetermined, but he hasn't predestined. You are in control of whether or not you will receive eternal life. No man, I can't tell you. I can't even look at your life and tell you you're going to go to hell if you don't change your ways. But you can decide if you're going to go to hell whether or not you change your ways. And so one thing was lost in all of this, and that's what Jesus wanted the most, love. Love lost. And now we have the temple model with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. And this next part, listen, this next part I'm completely making up. You got me? The other part I did not. This part I'm completely making up. So, it was as, as if Jesus and Paul are, sending, are standing at the balcony of heaven looking down and they're asking themselves, how did we ever get to this? How did we ever make it here? How did they get this out of this? Jesus is like, Paul, I was down on my knee looking them in the eye, washing and healing the corns on their stanky feet as I looked at them saying, this you do as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this love, everyone will know that you are my disciples, not on what you believe, but how you love one another. And Paul goes, Jesus, I, you said it, but Jesus, I wrote it. He's like, I wrote it, and I gave it to them, and I corrected what they were doing, and I said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then Peter walks on the scene. He's like, guys, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but Jesus, you got a garden tomb. Like, you got this nice little place, and a lot of people like to come and visit, and it's a pretty little tomb. It's a nice little garden, and people can go and take communion there, and they can pray through the garden on the way to your tomb. You got that. Do you know what they did to my burial site? He's like, Jesus, Paul, they put a temple on top of my burial site. He goes, but I told them. I told them, have sincere love for each other, to love one another deeply from their hearts. I told them. So how could something so simple, so pure, so grassroots, so one another, one another become so temple? And the reason is, there's a little bit of temple model in all of us. And what you fear and what you think God condemns, and what you feel guilty over is what you have been taught, they have been taught to us, and have shaped our consciences 
whether they have biblical theology behind them or not. You should be in your Word downloading those version notes from the message I just spoke, and you should be cross-checking everything I say to make sure I am telling you the truth, and you need to come back to me and say, Pastor Nathan, I don't know about that. Here's what the Word of God says to me. And I'm going to say, let's sit down and let's work this thing out together because nothing matters. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what you say. The only thing that matters is what the Word of God says. Because I will not bring you freedom and you will not bring your own freedom, but the Word of God being lived out in your soul will bring you freedom. And that's a promise. And consequently, they... This religion, this temple model thinking has been holding you back, has been holding me back. In fact, it's holding the whole church back. Yeah, even you. So have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how close to sin you can get without God considering that sin? Have you ever wondered, like, God, if I do this, or if I look this long, or if I just drink a, do a little bit of this or a little bit of that, if I just smoke a little bit, is that sin? Like, I'm not going to lose my self-control. Is that, if you've ever wondered how close you could get and it still be not sin, that's temple model thinking. If you even ever feel guiltier about missing mass or missing church, or missing your prayer time more than you do the condition of your relationship with your spouse or your friends? Temple model thinking. If you ever feared your own eternal destiny or your child's eternal destiny based on some water being sprinkled, as if some sprinkling of water could ever bring salvation... If you've ever been concerned that if you've been baptized, you'll be saved or not eternal salvation, temple model thinking, we believe in baptism. Salvation comes when you receive and declare Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior over all. Baptism is you declaring... The old has gone and the new has come and I want the whole world to know about it. You are identifying with Christ being in the tomb and raised again, but it has nothing to do with the eternal factor of your life. It is just showing that you have eternal factors. Maybe you failed morally with someone. And if you've been more concerned about what God might do to you than what you have done to that other person or against another person, temple model thinking. And don't leave without getting this right here. Because in the temple model thinking, people are more concerned about themselves and God than they are about other people around them. It's all about me and God. Temple model thinking. Because people would come into the temple to make things right between them and God, and God's saying, 
Me being right with you is you outside with your brother, your sister, your spouse, your relationships, your whatever. So if you're more concerned about your relationship between you and God and what's going on there, temple model thinking, because Jesus is pointing you back to others. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for the Christian that you can't stand. Jesus died for that pagan of the world that you can't stand. Jesus died for them too. And it's your love that is going to draw them to him and confirm what he's already doing in their hearts. And the big question always leads to, when religion wants to rise up and this temple model thinking wants to move you to do something, to believe something, or to get angry, this thing that has to be, this one question that has to be wrestled around in your soul, that has to reshape your conscience, and when you want to get fired up over this one thing that's going to disturb your relationship with others, the question that you must ask yourself to rewrite your software from temple thinking to Jesus movement thinking is, What does love require of me? What does love require of me in this moment? When I want to get all flared up, when I want to get all angry, when I want to get all hostile, when I want to just pull away, when I want to go to solitude and be isolated, when I want to just do me and God, what does love require of me? Because God's love for us and for those around us must inform our conscience and shape our behaviors. It's that one question being inserted in that moment that causes the love of Jesus to rewrite our consciences to be reshaped according to what Jesus really meant when He came to bring a new covenant, a new command, a new ethic, a new movement. And until we begin to impart the answer from Jesus on that one question, and every time that temple model wants to rise up, we will be the very issue that continues the temple model throughout the generations. I want to pray for you. If you'll just ask one question. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I'm going to walk you through a prayer. We've been doing this a lot, but boy, we need it. If you'll put your hand on your heart and say, Father God, please forgive me for temple model thinking. Jesus, thank you for this new movement. Jesus, I embrace your command to reveal my love towards God by loving others. And Holy Spirit, empower me to live this life out. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, say it with me. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the King of Kings.